I have a few listener submissions to share with you, including one question about the death penalty, but we get to start with the fourth week of Advent, wherein we talk about the love of God and the Christmas season. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joy and strains. Oh, different ways the lord has been good this week to provide some uh, conversations and then some email submissions to give us what i think will be a very productive and fun 50 or so minutes together so i'm glad to have you with us on the cory truax show on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 that's saturday mornings and saturday evenings at eight o'clock and also wherever you find podcasts you can find the cory truax show and i hope you will i also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at beachwood church beachwood church meets at uh, 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and you are invited. It'll be great to have you, especially if you don't have a church home. We will be concluding here soon with our Advent season, the uh, the series of sermons there. Uh, those have been a blast. I, we, I just recently got to go to our Christmas party with Beachwood Church. What just what a, what a fun group of people. I was talking to a gentleman here recently, a, I'd, I'd call a friend now, who talked about going to one of the local mega churches, which I have a ton of. For this particular megachurch, I have a ton of respect for, a ton of admiration and affinity for their theo- theological rigor. And he he was talking about one of the challenges of the, the giant church situation being connection, genuine connection to others, that it's just super easy to walk into church, sit down, have church happen to you. There's a musical performance and then maybe a really good and maybe even theologically sound sermon given to you and then walk out while well, you made eye contact with a few people and maybe exchange some pleasantries, but not nothing that is uh, deep and abiding in terms of friendships. Where, as I know at Beachwood, like every week after service, eventually whoever's locking up has to say, okay, you, you guys got to go now. Like we, we linger, we like each other. It's, it's a fun time. So I'm uh, super grateful for Beachwood Church this time of year. We got to get started or we are going to waste all of our time. This week's Advent theme is love. Those of you that have listened to me for a long time, you might know immediately, I struggle with that. When it comes to the balance of the law of God and the grace of God, I grew up in and identify with the law of God. That there would be judgment for the wicked. That there is an order God has made and a partnership he made with us and that there would be adherence to those covenants and those laws. That's something I highly identify with. And I will even admit, I get skeptical. I found this in my own heart. It's not healthy. Skeptical of people who emphasize the love of God as if it's not abundantly true that there's a deep abiding love in the Trinity that before any human was on this earth before creation came into being, there was a totally satisfied, loving relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, as 1 John says, God is love. So, that is the theme. We have theme one, the hope of a coming Messiah. Then the week two, the preparation for that coming Messiah, because when you hope for something, you prepare for it. And then that final coming, the culmination It leads to exaltation and celebration. We have the joy of Christmas and Jesus comes. 
And now living in the light of that, to, to those walking in darkness, light has come, as Isaiah 9 says. And now in the light of that coming, the reality of Jesus coming to us, we now bask in, live in the consistent, persistent love of God. And here is how I want to illustrate that to you. The Christmas stories, for a lot of folks, I think, they think it begins with Luke 2. That there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And that Mary and Joseph go from Galilee down to the city of Nazareth, into Beth, uh, from the city of Nazareth into Bethlehem, that, that he was born there. That's where we started. Maybe even some would back up a little to Luke 1 and get the story of Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth and the prophecy of Jesus and, uh, and John the Baptist in that story. Maybe some would even back it up to the prophecies of a coming Messiah, like right there in Isaiah 9 that I quoted a minute ago, that those walking in darkness will see a great light. And that same passage giving us that there is one coming who would be called, uh, that he would be a, a son given, a child is born, a son is given, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But something that I preached to Beachwood Church, and a sermon you can find on the podcast feed as we go through this Christmas series. Is Christmas and the story thereof began in Genesis 3. When mankind sins, and the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, God in giving his judgment to the serpent, our enemy, says there will be enmity between your offspring, serpent, and the offspring of this woman, Eve. And this offspring, this one coming from the line of humanity to make everything right, you'll bruise his heel. He'll crush your head, though. And that takes us back, I think. We, when we talk about the love of God, I think we have to see it broadly in the, in the totality of the story of Scripture, the, the story God has told us. And man, I tell you this, I love stories. It's, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited. I know this is a, an odd aside. I'm so excited about the new Taylor Swift album. She got back to her, her roots of just telling stories. So why I liked guys like Edgar Allan Poe, and, and Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Why I really enjoyed when I was a kid, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Man, can they write a story. I, I don't mind saying, even though it makes some of you uncomfortable, why I enjoy J.K. Raw, Rawling so much. That Harry Potter story is so good. There's so much there, so much depth to it, if you actually read it more than once. There's some of these classic stories. It's, it's why the Bible, to me, is easy to love. The the story of Ruth is so dramatic, and it has comedy in it, and it's so fun. The overarching story of the Bible, though, is about Jesus, and ultimately, it does end in, its culmination is God rejoined with man, and the force that wrought it, the force that brought that about, was the love of God focused on his people. Let me illustrate. Going back to Genesis God makes man. He makes us and decides to partner. He calls us to partner with him in his creation. He gives us this command. He gives us this, uh, let's go with commission. Be fruitful. Make more people. Multiply. Make more people. Fill the earth. And by the way, be fruitful would not just be make more people. It would be make the earth fruitful. Use its resources properly. Increase the flourishing of man. So be fruitful. Multiply. Fill up the earth that I have made. Fill the lands that I have made. And he, get, he says specifically dominion over the animals. He starts with a fish, 
Uh, so that, that which is in the water, that which is in the sky, he says birds and on the land. And you know that we failed that. We failed in our partnership to do those things. Adam being passive as he stood next to his wife, as her and his sin broke the world, he broke his commission. He didn't do the things necessary to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. And he didn't have, he does, he, I tell you this is definitely, he did not have dominion over that animal. That serpent that came to tempt, he did not take dominion over it. Fast forward a few chapters. By the way, I'm, I'm taking this from somebody. I recently had heard this spoken and taught, and I just, oh, it resonated with me so much, and now I'm giving you my own version of it. Fast forward a few chapters, we get Noah. The world is destroyed by the flood. By the world, I mean the, the, the lands of the world inhabited and destroyed by a flood. Noah gets off of that boat up on a mountain, just like the Garden of Eve was up the Garden of Eden was up on a mountain. And instead of by a tree, he stands by a boat made of a tree, and God gives him a new commission. It actually sounds like this. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. But then here's what he says to Noah. And I will put a fear in the beasts of the field. I'll put a fear in the animals. God, in his love, says to Noah, as we recreate the world... I still give you these these commissions in the partnership with me. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But the last time, the last Adam, he could not handle that dominion over the animals thing. So I'll do that. I'll give them a fear of you. Fast forward. Babylon. In the Tower of Babel, after Noah has come off the ark, the the, the hearts of man are getting dark again. But God God has commissioned to partner with humanity. And they are fruitful... There's more people. They are, and, and, they, and they multiply, and there are more people. And they're obviously building technologies. They're, uh, they're, they're coming together and therefore feeding, being able to feed each other and handling the resources of the earth. In Babylon, it must be true that they are being fruitful and multiplying. But they don't fill the earth. They decide to all stay in one place. We're all going to gather together for our name and renown, not taking the commission God gave us, and we aren't going to fill the earth. We're all going to come together here. So God comes down, and he separates their language, and he spreads them out among the known lands. So whereas the original commission was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, dominion over the animals, after Adam, God says, I'll do that for you. I'll take dominion over the animals. You do these. Then after Babylon... Well, you, where you won't fill the earth. Well, I will do that for you. You failed in that. Then Abraham comes. And Abraham, he, he, there's a covenant there. But in what he says to Abraham, he says, I will make a nation of you. I will multiply you. I will make you fruitful. And there is some strong imagery of the, the, the sacrifice of, of God even walking through uh, an, a sacrifice, walking through an animal to, to make clear that this is his covenant. He will do it. And he says to his people, trust me, be faithful, but I will do these things. And so just in the first, what's that, 15, 16 chapters of Genesis, what is a commission for humanity and through, that, that they can't handle? That humanity 
is too passive or too rebellious, uh, utterly unable to do that which the Lord has called us to do. And instead of rejecting us, instead of leaving us, instead of abandoning us, God looks down at his creation and says, I'll do it. Those things I purposed for you, I will do them. And then later through Jesus, the, the ultimate doing it myself. Jesus comes down, lives the life all of us should have lived and could not. Keeps every commandment and expectation of the Lord and then dies the death that we deserve to die. That is the love that the Christmas season, the Advent season brings in the one in which we get to live. When we come back, I have a quick word, uh, some kind of recognition that I had about how we can think about all of our lives, resources, time, families, a quick word on that. Uh, And then I do want to get into some of the news of the week, things like some folks talking about secession. And then there was this, uh, I want to talk about it theologically, we're not doing it politically, but there was this thing called the Jericho March in Washington, D.C. that really needs to get discussed from a theological perspective. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on His Radio Talk or wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for joining me. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also find the Advent series that I am doing at Beachwood Church out on the podcasting feed, and I hope you will. Also at anchor.fm, anchor.fm, you can become a supporter of the show, and I certainly hope you will. Uh, back in July, who was the person who was probably my favorite music artist of my lifetime, it well, she's probably my favorite. It's, it's her, you too. Uh, it's Taylor Swift. She put out an album, and it was awesome. And she put out another album about a week ago. And I can't tell you how much I'm having to hold myself back from just talking about it. Uh, but I got to suspect the cross audience of people who are interested in what I have to say about theological, cultural, and political matters probably don't care what I have to say about a pop star's latest album. So we will not do that. Instead, we will do this. In one of those recent sermons in the Advent series, something in particular stuck with me. There was a scene here between Gabriel and Mary. The angel Gabriel goes to Mary and makes her an incredible promise. And this is not how it actually works in the text, but in my head it becomes a a dialogue between the two of them talking. So Gabriel goes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. And she thinks, oh, great, cool. I'd love to have a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. That sounds great. That's a very popular name right now. Very trendy. And he will be great. I get to have a prominent son who's going to do incredible things. And then Gabriel says, and he will be the son of the most high. He will reign on his father David's throne. And he will reign forever and ever. And his kingdom will never end. That's where I think Mary goes, wait, what? What's, what's happening? Because up until then, that was just all very super normal news, but normal good news. And after she hears this overwhelming thing, she says, for whatever reason, very, had a high impact on me, very, very affecting. She says, behold, I am your servant. Whatever it is you said these things to me, let it be. 
And there's something about that open-handedness. Whatever the consequence, I'm just going to be your servant. And it brought to this to mind a, another conversation I had recently with somebody, the idea of stewardship, that maybe all of life is stewardship, and if we would understand that better, then we would all, A, be better followers of Jesus, those of us who are, but also probably quite a bit happier. That, that if we saw everything we had as a gift and not something that we earned, something that we deserve, if instead our idea was my wife, my, my husband, my spouse is a gift. The kids I have are gifts. My home is a gift. My job, a gift. The skills, intellect, ability, work ethic that I have, the Lord gave me. Those that I use to work my job and get my job, those are gifts. Everything is a gift. And therefore, if when I'm being a, given a gift by somebody, someone has, in, has entrusted me with something, so maybe better than gift, it's a, a resource that I have been offered to steward. It really belongs to someone else, but they've said, you can use this. This intellect you have, the skills, these abilities, this job, this money, these resources, this house, they're actually mine, but I'm going to let you use them. And if we had that attitude then I, I think it obviously would lead to a better Christian life, a, a life more, uh, more pleasing to our Lord, but I think it also, again, leads to, to more fulfillment and happiness. I thought, of, I thought of this in particular when it came to money and resources. There was, uh, in Mark, um, early in the Mark gospel, early in his gospel, somewhere in there, there is a parable of the sower where Jesus says there's different kinds of soil on which the seed of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, might fall. But before he gets into those different soils, he says that the, the person who plants fields, he plants the seeds, and then the, the, the crop comes, and he doesn't know how it happened. He did, and so I, I think about that guy. The guy who used to plant fields and would see the, the grain, the wheat, the product of the field come up and have to have this moment of wonderment. Like, I know that you plant seeds and this happens, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with sunlight and water, but I, I don't really know the mechanics of it. I don't even know how the sun's up there, why it comes out when it does. I don't know anything about photosynthesis and how it uses that. I don't know anything about really where water comes from and why it's in the ground like this. And so there, it's, it's easy for that guy to say, the Lord has done this. This is a blessing from the Lord. He has given me this grain, this wheat, these crops, the product of my field. This belongs to him, and now I'm going to steward it because it's a gift he gave me. That's harder for us. Because when that investment matures and your bank sends you that notification, that just feels like something you did. I was smart. I was wise. I put that money away. When that direct deposit hits your account, that just feels like something you did. And I, there's something about that that I think we need to, to think through. How, how can we, with discipline, think about our resources when they come to us, recognize that is something the Lord did. Directly or indirectly, everything I have is the Lord's. And therefore, if everything I have is the Lord's, then I can, with, with Mary, say, Behold, I am your servant. 
what would you have me do? One of the things I am wrestling through that I'm trying to figure out how to talk about on the air sometime soon, I might bring in some help on this. I'm, I'm thinking through my pneumatology. Those of you who aren't into theology, pneumatology is the field that concerns studying the Holy Spirit. And I just came through this part of the Advent series where he, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, Luke writes about uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and John the Baptist as having been filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you put them all together, you chart it out, it is as if he's talking about the Holy Spirit being that which empowered them to do the things they did. The Holy Spirit being present. And for someone like me with a Baptist background, that's super uncomfortable. We are really good with our theology of the Father, Yahweh God. We are super strong with our theology of Jesus, lifting his name high, the centerpiece of all creation, by whom and for whom all things were made. We are Jesus people. And then we get to the Holy Spirit, and it gets super uncomfortable really quickly. And that's because of some of the excesses we've seen of other denominations, and uh, it's, it's because of theological differences about how some folks have talked about being redeemed, like actually being in Christ versus needing the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I just know this. The, the church in the West, in Western Europe, and in North America. As I talked about just a few weeks ago, it is waning. It's, it's, coming, it's coming to some, not to an end, but it's coming to its lowest point. And the church around the world is getting stronger. And there, listen, correlation is not causation, all right? So I want to be clear, but let me make my case here. Holy Spirit theology, the need for the Holy Spirit, some type of emphasis hate that word, actually. Um, let's not go, not go with emphasis. Let's go with just recognizing uh, the importance of the Holy Spirit. That's happening more in Latin America. That's happening more in Africa and Asia. And that's where the church is growing. So that's a correlation. The place where the church is growing, the Holy Spirit is, being rec- is, is getting taught more often. And there's a, a recognition on his role. And the place where the church is waning, we're a little bit more hesitant about talking about the Holy Spirit. And I don't know that that is causation. It is just a correlation. I know that I'm wrestling through it right now, and I've not come to a conclusion. And so, hey, if you've got thoughts on that, or you want to send me any resources, Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, look for me, Truax. You will find me there as I try to wrestle through my theology of the Holy Spirit, or pneumatology. Now, here's something else I've been wrestling through for years now. Uh, how should I open this? Let's open here. Rush Limbaugh got in some trouble. You know, I, I have lost all my affinity for Rush Limbaugh. I should Let me spend two minutes on this. I promise I won't go longer than two minutes. Rush Limbaugh is one of the top ten most significant people to my intellectual and philosophical formation. For better or worse, that's true. I grew up riding around with my dad from time to time if we were in the car from 12 to 3, and Rush Limbaugh would be on. I became a, he called them Rush Babies. Uh, from the time I began to be able to drive at 15 years old, I listened to close to 15 hours a week of Rush Limbaugh. I purchased and read both of his books. He taught me Edmund Burkean type limited government, maximum freedom type conservatism. He taught me that. And I am so grateful for those 
philosophies in learning the information because I, I would stand by this with full conviction. American conservatism of all of the ph philosophies that are out there when practiced properly is the best philosophical system for human flourishing. It does the best, the, the most amount of good things for the most people. It's flawed. It has its shortcomings. Nowhere near the shortcomings of all the other philosophies available to us, including secular leftism and American liberalism. Now, I've, I've lost affinity for Rush along the way, primarily because of his Trumpism. I enjoy Rush when he was just being conservative and teaching conservatism. I enjoyed Rush when he was showing us the foibles and the, intele the intellectual lacking of leftism or liberalism. I enjoyed the humor. The guy was so funny. And admittedly, I should honor him. He has some, he's a bit of a powerhouse. So the, the spoken word being a, an industry is in some large part his doing. He made talk radio. He turned it into a thing. He is in some ways the father of podcasting in that way. Even though he doesn't even have a podcast, he made talking into microphones instead of singing into them a thing. And then he went full Trump, dropped all the conservative principles because it was just Trump is the rubric. We, all, we know good by Trump. We know bad by Trump. And he went off the rails and I lost all affinity for him and stopped listening to him years ago. Now, in the uh, aftermath of this election, Rush Limbaugh got into some trouble a couple weeks ago because he said something like, maybe it's time. To, or he, that's, that's what he said. He said, the way he sees it, we are trending toward secession. That came on the heels of that Texas lawsuit that was denied by the Supreme Court 9 to nothing, trying to overturn or at least, uh, or, or trying to affect the election outcome, where the Texas Attorney General said maybe it's time for constitution-abiding states to create their own union of states. Now, this is something being brought up right now by folks on what's the traditionally thought of as the political right. If you'll remember, back in January 2017, there were people talking like that in California, that California should secede from the union because Donald Trump was president. It's actually not all that uncommon that when a Republican wins a presidential election, folks on the left say that. When a Democrat wins, folks on the right say that. It's very immature. It's very stupid. And everyone should grow up that when their team loses, they stop, that they talk this way. Now, for all of the, maybe the overreaction of people being babies when their team loses. Guys, I've, if you've been listening for a long time, you know I'm, I'm warm to this idea. Not for these childish temper tantrum reasons, but, but for some deep and abiding philosophical ones, very practical things. I don't think Rush should be in trouble for saying what he said. I think maybe we should actually talk about it. I have said at least these two things over the last two years on the show. With some regularity, I talked about how we have, or we are in a cold civil war. We are at civil war with each other. There are people in the country, millions and millions, who hate, despise, fear each other. And they have brought them, they have coalesced into sides and they truly do despise and fear the other side. Some, some millions of people have fallen into that. So I've said we have this cold civil war. We do. 
The only thing we're not doing yet is shooting at each other or killing each other. And that has come in, has come right up against the line this year with some of the things that happened in bigger cities and conflicts between some of the more extreme factions. So there's this cold civil war, but I've also said, I do think we probably have irreconcilable differences. There are parts of the country that are so different, that share nothing in common, that there's no reason for them to be in a country together. It doesn't make sense for them to be in a country together. That, uh, the four, I, I'm going to, uh, I got to go faster on this. I, I, let me say it this way. I don't think se- secession is a bad idea. It's something that adults should be talking about seriously. We just did have Britain do Brexit. Now, that was a, that's a different kind of union. The European Union was different. But the idea of breaking this continent into two different entities under two different philosophies might actually be the thing that leads to the most peace. This isn't technically a marriage. You know, for marriages, I say in, in all cases, uh, in almost all cases, fight to make it work. Marriage is good. Let's do everything we can to keep them together. This is not a marriage. Sometimes, in these cases, divorce is very logical. D- getting divorced from certain parts of the country, getting away from one another, might actually be the wisest thing. The three things, the core things you have to have to have a people group, we don't have anymore. We don't share, those thing, three things, by the way, are uh, history, philosophy, and it's uh, values, history, philosophy, and values. So uh, you, can have, you have to have a shared history. You agree, you agree generally about your history. Uh, but there's one side of the country that says the history of the United States is largely good. Uh, it has its, its chapters that are bad, and it has its blemishes, but it's largely the story of a people group getting better, and it's a generally good place. And there's a group of people that say no. It is to its core, from the start, down to its roots, evil, and therefore it should be destroyed. So how do those two people live together? That's not just like a little difference of opinion. That's a core, fundamental, different belief. They have different views of their history. They have different philosophy. So there's a group of people that say, generally, we believe in individualism, not collectivism. Uh, we believe in freedom, that every individual needs to needs to be free, that you're responsible to take care of yourself. These are our... Uh, and that, Power should be separated. And there's a group of people that say power should not be separated. It should be concentrated in Washington, D.C. Your governors should be more relevant. Your state legislature should be more relevant. We want to concentrate power in one city with a few people and particularly want to make the president super duper powerful. Uh, and then we don't believe in individualism. We are collectivists. We, but we don't think the individual should take precedent over the, over the group. I could go on. But there is this philosophical difference that... It used to not be there. Even on the left and right, the, the left would say, yeah, we're for individualism, and we just think there's some small exceptions. But that's not where we are there, are, are now. We have real deal, actual leftist socialists who don't think it's good for there to be individualism. And then, uh, what was the other one? Values. So we have, uh, on, on our side, we have the old values of a hard day's work. You get what you earn. You should suffer the consequences of your action or inaction. And then there's a philosophy that's opposite of that now. It's really pro- that's quite prominent. And that would be that you, no matter what you do, we should all take care of you. You, you deserve something for just existing. Just because you exist. Even if you're able-bodied and capable and just unwilling to take care of yourself we take care of you. So there's no value on hard work. There's no value on just getting what you deserve. 
that you should suffer the consequences when you do the wrong thing. Like there's fundamental disagreements on the, the things that make a people group. Philosophy, history, values. You can't even actually build a, peop- a people group with any kind of coherence on s- some other things like even religion. That typically doesn't hold a people together particularly well. Uh, you, you definitely can't do it with some of the other institutions of a culture. The, the idea that a culture just likes a lot of the same music can't do it. Likes the same movies or the same kind of dancing or something like that. Cultural things can't do it. And so we have these irreconcilable differences on the core things. I, did, I do know this. I'm, I'm about to sound really pessimistic and very partisan. For, for some folks on the left that listen to me, I'm sorry a little for what I'm about to do. But this is how I feel right now. And maybe that's what I should just say is how I feel. I, I don't know how to live peaceably in the same country when there actually is a group of people that say, I should have power over you. We, 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 this group of people, we're smarter, we're wiser, we're better. We deserve power to make other people do whatever we want. And if you don't get on board, you're a racist, sexist bigot, you're a homophobe, you're living in the past, you're backward, give us power, we demand it. Whereas I would say, and me and my folks on my side just say, we're actually just looking for power to leave you alone. And we don't want to force people to do anything. I don't know how to live in a, I don't know how to live peaceably with folks who believe deeply and are willing to, to call me names, tell me I'm evil, because they think it should be illegal to not have health insurance, but they think it should be legal just to walk across the border, take someone's social security number, and start working. I don't know how to live peaceably in harmony in a country where there are people that actually don't think of people's children as theirs. You, those of you who have kids, there's a left-wing component. They don't think your, your children are yours. To them, children are theirs. They belong to the system. So how dare you homeschool them if you want to do that? How dare you Christian school them if you want to do that? How dare you teach them your religion? And there are folks on the left that say that we need to protect kids, get them out of households if they're being taught religion because they're being, they're, they're being brainwashed. How do you live peaceably with someone who looks into your house and says, I don't like what you're doing in your house, and I want to take away your freedom to do it. And only because of this, I just think I'm better than you. I just think I'm smarter than you. And I should be able to, do, I should be able to tell you to do whatever I want. How do you live in harmony with those folks? I just, I just saw this this big debate over this, this guy who was executed a couple weeks ago through the death penalty because he's a, a, a murderer, of, of to, murderer of toddlers. And folks on the left arguing is such a gigantic disservice and, and, a, and a moral thing to kill this guy. And, but they're really super cool with a, a six, seven, eighth month pregnant woman walking into a place and having a child dismembered and pulled out of her womb piece by piece by piece. How do you, how do you reconcile that? How, how, do I, how do I reconcile living in a country where I actually have someone who says men can be women and have babies? There's, what? And, you, and you, you believe that because you decided to believe it a couple years ago? There's no science or social science. You all just decided to believe it on, on a whim. How do we live in a place where the, that both of these things can be true? They believe literally, absolutely anyone can be a woman. Just say it. I'm a woman. But then, so, which means this. 
being a woman means nothing. Being a man means nothing. If anyone can be either one of them, then the definition of them is so unimportant then who should care? But then at the same time, it's super important that a certain amount of women be involved in everything. So yeah, I, I don't mind saying, I look out at, that, at the group and go, yeah, I don't think we can live together. And I think the feeling is mutual. You look at me and think there's some backward thinking. And so for all of the hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about secession, guys, that might actually be the right call. And it shouldn't be radical to say so. It shouldn't be radical to say, yeah, maybe we just have... Maybe we have irreconcilable differences and we should just break up. Okay, that's it for that. I got to take a break. I'm actually way over on this break. When we come back, I want to talk about this Jericho march that took place in Washington, D.C. I had some quite disturbing, I thought it was quite disturbing, actually. And I will share that, share why when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. I promise I'm about to be very careful and very precise with the criticism I'm about to give. So stick with me. I'm going to do my best. And I think if the Lord will help me, that I can do it quite well. So let's get started here in just a moment. My name is Corey Truax. Thank you, thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, 91.9, 92.9, or wherever you find podcasts. Here we go. One preamble thought. Another theme of the show this year has been the war between what I've called two competing religions, leftist wokeism, and I think I called the other one rightist Trumpism, or maybe just Trumpism. So I need to be precise with my language. If you voted for Donald Trump, or you were generally positively inclined towards the results you were getting, I'm not talking about you. I'm not saying that you're, I, I think I called it maybe Trump cult, or the the rightist Trump cult, something like that. I'm not talking about you, right? And for my left, the folks lean left to listen to me, I'm probably not talking about you, those that have cr created a cult. That's the, all the signs of a cult. For example, creating its own language. And so the way that the, the left picks up all this gender language and uh, comes up with all kinds of new terms at the university level that get put out into the world. So I'm probably not talking about anyone listening to me. But there are two competing religions. They have all the markings of religion, leftist wokeism and rightist Trumpism. And I just went off on a real rant about leftist wokeism minutes ago. Okay, And so now I have an example of the excesses of the Trump religion. And I need you to hear me say, I'm not talking about you if this doesn't apply to you. One of my favorite quotes from a preacher ever was he was asked after a sermon one time, when you said that one example about this one sin, were you talking about me? And this preacher said he, he wasn't. He actually did not know this would affect this person at all. But he said back to that person, if, if it was about you, then it was about you. And so if this isn't about you, it's not about you. Okay, so don't get mad at me over here because we, we do need to get through this. Now one more preamble thought that just hit me. I really think we need to be studying, as I'm about to start more deeply, studying the 30 years war. It, it, was a, it was a holy war, a religious war, in Europe in the 1600s. Uh, and guess what? It lasted for 30 years. I bet you couldn't guess that. And it was, it was between Protestants and Catholics. But I think that's actually going to be the model for how we interact going forward. This is a religious war. And I'm not talking about Jesus, real Jesus following is the one religion against another. I'm saying two fake cults 
are about to treat each other like a religious war, where both sides are demanding that the other do exactly what they say, say the words they want them to say, behave exactly like they want, or they are willing to use the government to punish them. I think that's what we're getting into. It's a religious war, and neither one of the religions are the actual Jesus-following one. I think that's what we're getting into. All right, here we go. Eric Metaxas. The guy has gone off the rails. He's gone utterly insane. He, is, he wrote one of the best books I've ever read. He wrote a biography of Bonhoeffer. I think of him as generally smart. But he emceed, master of ceremonied, a rally in Washington, D.C. called the Jericho March. That's, that really was Trump religion. They, they mixed the two things together. There were religious symbols and hands raised in worship by a bunch of people wearing Trump hats, Trump shirts, Trump flags, and with a lot of religious language like amens and praise gods to language around Donald Trump remaining president of the United States. That should make you uncomfortable. If it does not make you uncomfortable, that is a problem in you. The trappings of the Christian religion being wrapped up in this person, that should trouble you, trouble you deeply. I pulled some quotes here from a story written by Rod Dreher. I'm a, I'm a fan, not all the time of Dreher, but it's just, he does some good work. I consider him a brother. We have some theological differences, but he went to this rally so that he could report on it, this Jericho March. And I want to give to you what, what he saw there, uh, but you, you can find more about these Jericho people at JerichoMarch.org. I advise not doing that because, again, these, these folks, are they're out there. The, it's also one of the things that should be mentioned is they're quite ecumenical. You've got Messianic Jews there. You've got Catholics there. You've got folks from my tribe there. Um, everybody's there, which should tell you something as well. I, I have not been involved in some things that I've been invited to because they seem too ecumenical to me. Denominations or folks that I know are not in the faith were being included, and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to, to muddy the waters. And that's, that's, what sh- that's what should tell you something about this movement, that there is an ecumenicalism to it. All of the faiths coming together, even when they have different, they have diff- uh, even different theologies of, uh, of, of salvation, I mean, some really fundamental things, well, they all come together around their one true God. Their one true God is Donald Trump being president. Present. President. And so this is a small group, I need to admit. It's not that we're going to take over the country or anything. But my interest is often chiefly theological. And so when they are bastardizing Bible and bastardizing theology, I want to address that. Yes, the Trump part bothers me. What bothers me much more deeply is the theological problems. So reading from Rod Dreher's website when he went to the... Jericho rally. Here we go. Eric Metaxas told the crowd that a particular man had a vision of the Jericho march a few days ago and that we would meet the man on stage soon. Quote from Eric Metaxas, when God gives you a vision, you don't need to know anything else. Oh, no. I actually got the audio of that. I'm not going to play it for you. We don't, we're going to run out of time, but He said those words, when God gives you a vision, you don't need to know anything else. This is the kind of danger you're running into with these theological movements. 
it is that kind of shallow and incorrect in theology that would lead to this kind of Trump worship. Yeah, you actually do need more than a vision. We've been given the better thing. We've been given scripture. We've been given the Bible that speaks over any of your visions, any of your prophecies. The book of Revelation would even say that the book is closed, we, it, and the, the, the Bible will tell us of itself that it's all we need for life and godliness, that it is sufficient. So if you're getting a vision, Eric, I would ask you, why do we need it? What, what, what purpose does it have? What relevance does it have? We have the scriptures and everything we need is there. And if you don't need it, if we don't need it, I don't even care about hearing it. it, it, it what, all that we have is in the scripture. And so you know immediately we have a problem because we got visions being given and we don't even need scripture to back them up. After Eric Metaxas spoke, going back to Rod Dreher's story, next came up was the guy who started Mike, or My Pillow, a guy named Mike Lindell. He also spoke about the prophetic visions and dreams that he had about Donald Trump. So again, no Bible, just some prophecies and dreams that he had about Donald Trump being president and staying president. Well, next up on the raw, so that's, I'm trying to paint a picture there for you, theologically. Whatever else you want to think politically, theologically, this is a problem. When we're basing our political involvement on people's visions and dreams that we can't even verify while sitting over dusty on our shelves is, is some actual power, some actual clarity of all we need to know, which is scripture. If we are living in a world where we're trusting after people's visions and dreams, we're not living in a biblical world. Back to Rod Dreher's story. A man who was one of the founders of the Jericho March took the stage to explain how the march came about. He said, God poked me in the side one night and God said, it's not over. The election's not over. So here, here we are. We got a man who says, I had a vision. Uh, I've had prophetic visions. And God poked me in the side and said to me of an American election. He told me, of all people, told me, it's not over. Next up was a set of Catholic priests who said all of the anti-Trump forces are demonic. And then folks talking about demons decided to then lead the ecumenical crowd that's supposed to include Protestants in prayers to Mary and the whatever of Guadalupe. That should bother some of the ecumenism, of those of you that would be bothered by such things. That the religious movement here that's supposed to be, uh, that's supposed to be backing the current president of the United States, that they base nothing in the Bible, they come together with very charismatic theology. It's visions. It's prophecies. It's very ecumenical. And this is what should bother the Bible-adhering, Bible-believing Christian. There, there is the politics of it, but much more important is the theology of it. Maybe one of the cores of this show, right? There's, there's the people. Yeah, and it's Eric Metaxas. He's crazy. Mike Lindell's gone crazy. These people have gone insane. And there's the news, the fact that they're having marches to try to overturn an election, that is over. And then there's the theology undergirding it, and the theology undergirding it is utter trash and garbage. And I I do want that to to be said of me, that when this time came, and people were using Bible this way, not even using Bible, but trying to use the name of the one true God of the universe— for their political outcome, yeah, I want to go ahead and be, I want to be on record for whatever little bit of audience I ever have, that that is, it's wrong, 
It's utterly backward and insane. And this is a maybe how I'll close the show. This is me trying to explain to you. This is a religion. I think some of you who listen who, who are Trump people, maybe you'll even see that right now. This is, these are the people I'm talking about. The people who have no biblical knowledge. They have decided in a unique way that Donald Trump is God's anointed. Not in the biblical way where God ordains all governments the same way that God ordained Barack Obama to be president, Joe Biden, George George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and all of them, and for that matter, Vladimir Putin, and whatever one of the oons or the ills is running North Korea, and and whoever, and I don't know, Mar, whatever her name is there in Germany, like who, yes, God ordains governments, but in some kind of specific way, because God told them, not because the Bible told them, but because God told them that Donald Trump is his chosen and anointed. You can see this is a cult. This is religious in nature. It's not based in any kind of fact or reality, but beyond that, it's not based, and more importantly, it's not based in good theology. This reminds me again of just thinking about the, the comparison with leftist wokeism. Leftist wokeism gets obsessed, obsessed with things like, for example, white supremacy. Not just white privilege, but white supremacy. That white supremacy is everywhere. It's, it's endemic in the culture. And how do they know? Just because no... No reason, no, no real stats or facts. It's just, it, just, it just is. We just believe it. And if you don't see it, it's just part of your flaws. And if, and, and again, like men can be women. How do you know? Because we believe it. It's just a matter of faith. And that's what happens here. As a matter of faith, demons are fighting Donald Trump. As a matter of faith, elections are stolen. And that, the, the, both of those groups are religions that the true Jesus-following Christianity can speak into and call both to repentance because both need to be called to repentance. As we close out the show today, I want to remind you, um, anchor.fm, anchor.fm, you can support the show, and I am actually asking you to do so with regularity. You can also continue to stick on this feed for the sermons that will finish up the Advent series. I will be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.